Hello and welcome to the Performing Animal Rights podcast series. My name is Ben Hunt. I am a performance artist and researcher at De Montfort University in the United Kingdom. Thank you for joining me today. This is a really interesting episode with Yvette Watt, who is a artist who was the brainchild behind Duck Lake, which involved a group of dancers in hot pink tutus and hard hats performing on a floating stage to music from Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake at a opening of a duck shooting season at Malting Lagoon on the east coast of Tasmania. And that's what I'll be talking to Yvette about today, as well as her creative practice and the animal rights movement. And Yvette's art practice spans 30 years. She has been actively involved in animal advocacy since the mid-1980s, including being a founder of Against Animal Cruelty Tasmania, which is now called Animals Tasmania, and her artwork is heavily informed by her activism. I hope you enjoyed today's chat with Yvette as much as I enjoyed talking to her. If you do find value in this podcast, please do follow, subscribe, please leave a review if you can, and share with like-minded folks. It would be greatly appreciated to reach as many ears that would find value in it as possible. All that's left to say is on with the episode. Just love to pick your brain on on your practice the yeah. first question is what originally compelled you to use performance in the animal rights movement which you know it's interesting you know i was thinking um i've been so i got involved in animal rights in the mid 80s which which pretty well aligned with when i it was sort of i think it might have been the sort of the last year or maybe the, just the year after i finished my undergraduate degree so they sort of coincided that you know as i started to move into um, my own art practice i got involved in animal rights and when i was thinking when i think back to and so that, i mean that happened because i joined animal liberation wa so i think it was like 1985 or 6 or something i can't remember exactly and Animal Liberation in Western Australia was quite an active organisation and we, we would hold quite a lot of events. And when I think about it, um, sorry, there's a cat trying to get on my lap. It's okay. Um, when I think about it, um, it's amazing how often some kind of performative thing was a part of our protests and demonstrations. And I didn't ever consider what we were doing at the time in a weird sort of way, I didn't really think about it as a creative thing. It was just what we needed to do to draw attention to an issue because the media is always looking for novelty. And performance in the many ways we might think about that term is a way of doing something that has some sort of um, visual that the media can pick up on so that they've got an opportunity for something that's worth videoing or taking a photograph of. They have an image. They've got something there to tie it to. Um, so when I think about it in that respect, it's been a part of my involvement in animal rights for all of my time in animal rights in, in various different ways. From, you know, the number of times we've hired costumes or had costumes made and sort of, you know, thought through some sort of, um, performative event has been a part of it um, so you know yeah essentially I think it's about creating something that has a visual affect on the people who are the passers-by but also to try and get that message out more broadly via the media so they've got some sort of image then to take 
into um, the press or television or whatever. Yeah, that's that's interesting to talk about novelty and this kind of thinking about how we can catch the eye. Um, yeah. So from that, from the novelty, from this kind of um, visual kind of idea, the costumes and stuff, what were the steps towards you going, I want to do the Duck Lake project and create something more spectacular than just a a novel kind of part of activism? Yeah, look, I mean, this is an interesting one because, you know, like I, I got out of grassroots activism quite some time back. I kind of got a bit burnt out by it, but also I'd spent sort of 20 years, you know, on committees and I really struggled in the end with interpersonal stuff around managing, you know, because I tended to be, you know, I started two different groups and it was great, but I kind of had got to the point where I needed to do something else. And one of the few things that I continued to do after I'd sort of backed out and was trying to get my master's, my PhD and things done, was I continued to go to the annual um, opening of the duck shooting season. Um, and I've been going, I've been living in Tasmania since 1999. And Western Australia, where I'm originally from, banned duck shooting in 1990, I think it was, must have been, yeah. And I was at the last, heavily involved in the campaign around all that, et cetera. And then when I got here, I was sort of lying low for a while. I'd had a pretty difficult time with the organisation, um, a couple of organisations in, in WA. And then in 2003, ended up at the opening of the duck shooting season um, here. And there was um, a relatively small number of us. And then in the following two years, I can't quite remember. Duck shooting was banned in 1990 in WA, I can't remember the exact years, it was like 95 and around that time in New South Wales and Queensland, it's never been allowed in um, the ACT. So Victoria and New South Wales and Tasmania, who are you know three states that are sitting down on the east coast there with Tasmania obviously across Bass Strait and its little island, are the three main states that continue with it. It's a much smaller thing here because we also have a very small population, but it continues on. When there's a drought... In some years, both Victoria and New South Wales, sorry, Victoria and South Australia, I should say, um, will call moratoria on their duck shooting seasons. Tasmania always goes ahead. And then we have all of these shooters who come down to Tasmania from the mainland because we still go ahead with it. So we kind of had this relatively quiet year in 2003. And then I think it was the following two years, it was just crazy. There were kind of people, shooters and all of the, um, duck rescuers also come from the mainland down to Tasmania, so these big years. And so for a year, for a while there, it kind of rolled around, and there, you know, with this kind of momentum. And then for some reason, I think one year I had glandular fever, and I think another year I had to go interstate for a wedding or something, and I missed two years in a row. And I went back, and there was hardly anybody there. It was like it was just, and I'd I'd pulled back from the from the animal rights organisation that was primarily responsible for organising it. And I was really quite distressed to see how little was going on there. But in those good years, when there, when I say a good year, I mean when there were lots of dusk, duck rescuers on the water, I have to say it's one of the things I least look forward to year by year. It's such an unpleasant thing and by no means as unpleasant as it is in some mainland states where you've got, you know, ducks falling all around you and guns going. It's, it's very spread out. The lagoon is enormous. 
and the shooters have their hides and it's quite a different thing. But I can remember a couple of years, one year in particular, several years, I can't remember how many before Duck Lake, standing in the middle of this freezing cold lagoon and actually a bit bored in part because you're waiting. You just, you, I mean, we do a really effective job of keeping the ducks from the shooters' guns, but it can, like, it, it just drags us hours of this. And but then I think it was the president of Animal Liberation New South Wales, Mark Pearson, was a big opera fan. And somehow there's this just, I can't explain how these things happen, but I ended up in my mind thinking about Swan Lake and thinking about how it's such a gendered thing. You know, it's all of these blokes, as we call them in Australia, in their camo gear and they're out there drinking beer and shooting guns and and I thought, you know, would be what would be the counter to that? And I just started to conjure in my mind this crazy scenario, a performance of ballet on the lagoon in pink tutus and Swan Lake was the obvious thing to do because Malting Lagoon is so named because swans go there in large numbers for their annual malt and the lagoon becomes covered in their feathers. It was like this crazy sort of scenario of just your mind going off on some crazy tangent and then when I went up there and you know years later and things had gone so devastatingly quiet and there were so few rescuers I don't know I suddenly started to think is this even possible you know what I think I might just I think I'm going to do it and I think it was a a few months later I ended up contacting a friend of mine who was a filmmaker and I spoke to Rafe about it and said, I want to do this thing. Would you help me with filming the process? And as soon as I spoke those words, you kind of set that train in motion and there's no stopping it. And it just took off from there. So I knew at the time that, you know, coming back to that thing around novelty, that, it, that, that one of the main points about that was um, we can't get media up there. It's a remote location. We couldn't even get protesters up there. So it really was about drawing attention to this issue that was an ongoing issue and that had gone very quiet. Just for clarification, was it lack of activists there, rescuers, yeah? This kind of, this need to do something big, was it to maybe attract more rescuers in or just to make a big statement? Absolutely, absolutely. Yep, yep. So attract more rescuers, bring attention to the issue again, have something for the media to actually go up there for. That's interesting how it's, the more artists and creatives in the animal rights movement I talk to, the more interesting that the art isn't just for the spectator, the non-activist spectator, but for the activists themselves as well. Mm, yeah, um, absolutely. Which is yeah, it's, it's a horrible thing to go up there. And that's the other thing is that it was, as an event, like it fulfilled everything that I hoped, but it was also like it really was a morale booster. which I think is a really important thing that we forget sometimes is, you know, how do we keep the momentum on these things going where you like year after year or week after week, or like it's the endlessness of what we're dealing with and that you actually do have to kind of do things that maintain people's spirit in this devastatingly awful thing that we deal with. The relentlessness yeah. of it is just, you know, something I think is is hard, you know, for people to maintain that momentum. You've mentioned before about the, the aesthetic choices you made for Duck Lake, mm. Duck Lake projects, the, the costumes and stuff, and the, a counter to the misogynistic kind of behaviour of these hunters. 
um, or these shooters, sorry. Can you speak more about the aesthetic choices? Yeah, There's yeah. a few of the things, and obviously the staging is quite unique and you had some logistical issues there as well, didn't you? Well, yes, <laughs> because, <laughs> um, so I mean, in terms of the aesthetics, you know, you know, as a kind of a, you know, possibly fairly simplistic, but in a way, something that was the obvious approach to a counter to that hyper-masculinity was the hot pink. And, you know, and the hot pink was this thing about, like, in my mind, it is that thing about it's not pastel, it's kind of hot. You know, it's this bright pink. But there's another reason for that. I mean, the pink was that kind of that pushback against hyper-masculinity. But the hot pink, the fluorescent thing, was because duck's eyes are particularly sensitive to unusual colour and movement. And so it wasn't just an aesthetic based on how things would look to humans and whether it was going to be visually impactful for the media or whatever. It was about the fact that it was going to be deterrent to the ducks. So that, you know, which is our, our number one strategy is that we get out there by the hides and we get out there with bright coloured um, flags and we made these wind socks and things years ago through some really interesting research that one of our members did into this very thing, um, because it turns out the ducks are much more repelled by the movement than noise from according to this research anyway. So there was that, but it was also sort of, you know, certainly around the media having something to film. In terms of the logistics, it was always going to be logistically difficult because Malting Lagoon, and the reason we go there is that there are very few public um, wetlands that we can access. A lot of the shooting in Tasmania happens on private property and Malting Lagoon is the number one public wetland that the shooters go to. So, and ironically, as a Ramsar listed wetland of high conservation value, the whole thing is just extraordinary. But it's it's nearly three hours from Hobart. It's um, quite a long drive to try and kind of got to carry everything up there you know there was this massive team I mean one thing I want to make really clear is that I may have come up with this crazy idea it would never ever have happened without the extraordinary support of this incredible team of people and people who didn't even know me very well you know like the Jed who designed and built the stage for me I can't even remember how Jed found out about it like he did go to the art school ages ago but I didn't really know him kind of you know very as a very kind of you know friend of a friend sort of thing and Christina who I did know who was a good friend of mine but she just stepped in like I've got no sewing skills and she was just like I know how to uh, uh, we can sort out the tutu thing and what are the dancers Judy Judy signed up thinking she might make sandwiches and she ended up being a dancer. So, you know, like there was this incredible generosity of an extraordinary number of people who made this happen. Jed was the one who solved the thing around the stage. I'm like, well, the stage has got to float on the lagoon. I have no idea how to make these things happen. None. I go into this thing with no idea how this is actually going to happen. So somehow, like he knew about like these big plastic blue barrels and, you know, we had this whole thing that just, strapped onto the, you know, they were piled in the back of his ute and my van and the, these giant barrels and things strapped onto the top of his roof, et cetera, et cetera. And then Glenn, Glenn, the choreographer, Glenn's not an animal rights person. 
but he was like he just loved the idea of it so he got involved and he's he works he's a an ex um sydney ballet dancer but now ran a a, a um a, a dance organization called oh what does maid stand for now adult dance experience but so he was used to working with inexperienced dancers and it was an amazing thing to watch him work with a bunch of people who are inexperienced dancers to bring this thing together because he didn't devise the choreography. They devised it as a group. And then, you know, we're kind of, we're going, we're getting close to things sort of, you know, to the date coming near and Parks and Wildlife somehow got wind of what we were doing. And they started to ask some questions and they started to throw all sorts of things at me, which I thought were quite spurious and decided that because it was going to be floating, I needed to get permission from um, what's it called, um, Maritime Tasmania or something, some kind of, you know. Anyway, I spoke to them and they went, no, we don't care. It's like, you know, it's in a lagoon and how, how deep is it? And I'm like, oh, thigh deep? And they went, nah, we don't care. And they just kept throwing hurdles in our way and eventually they, they just laid down the law and said, no, you can't, we won't let you do this on the lagoon. We won't let it float on the lagoon. They came up with all of these excuses you're going to damage the salt marsh walking it out there and didn't matter I could counter all their arguments they just well no it's not going to happen you can set it up in the car park by the lagoon but it can't be on the lagoon I might add that all of the people who are going to be walking onto the lagoon were still going to be walking on the lagoon including the shooters who are dragging their punts through this very uh, sensitive salt marsh um, so it was it was a complete kind of you know furphy around why we couldn't do this but anyway you know we set the um the thing up in the car park on the night before there was quite a lot of dissatisfaction at at the camp and there were a lot of us at the camp there was probably about 60 people and um anyway overnight I admit I did hear movement I did not get out of my van and I woke up in the morning and the the stage was on the lagoon I must admit, I would have been pretty disappointed if I'd woken up and that hadn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, because one way or the other, we're talking about kind of alternative strategies and, um, yeah, it was, it was what, what was interesting, though, is how it unfolded after that. So, you know, the, it's on the lagoon, the media are there, everything is going absolutely the way we wanted it to go. And the Parks and Wildlife guys at no point closed us down let it all go ahead and it was so that was March they had a bit of a word to me afterwards but everyone seemed to be in good spirits and you know I didn't think much more was going to I didn't think anything more was going to come up but they were kind of like mm, probably going to get a letter in the mail or something um and it was it was late December so between Christmas and New Year of that year that I finally had the police knock at my door it was so far after the fact. I wasn't home. They just left their card in the door and I rang them because I thought maybe neighbours had been robbed or something. And I spoke to the, the guy I spoke to at the police station. He went, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, it's the weirdest charge I've ever seen. He said, it's about erecting a dance floor. I went, ah, okay. I know what it's about. And he was incredulous that they had bothered with this and that they were being bothered with this. And his response is, oh, surely it won't even go to court. And ultimately, you know, they, they persisted. But I had the, and again, you know, we just, 
the the people Daniel Beecher, who is a um, a lawyer, a barrister in um, in Melbourne. He does enormous amount of pro bono work for animal rights groups and particularly around duck shooting issue, but all sorts of other things as well. Daniel um, got onto the case and um, I don't think they expected me to fight it. And in the end, when it eventually went to court, they just didn't didn't show, didn't produce any evidence. So it was just thrown out of court. Wow, what a journey. Were all the dancers on the platform activists from the shoot, like past activists or a mixture or? Nope. And that's the other thing. So it was kind of a word of mouth thing. Christy Alger, who was there that day, she wasn't one of the dancers, but she was there. That was her first activist event. And she's gone on to be one of the most effective and extraordinary activists I think I've ever come across. She's um, got one of those incredible brains She's an amazing, like an incredibly amazing speaker, but also very aware of all of the issues that get tied up around ego in the movement as well and gender, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, so for Christy that was sort of, you know, the, the, the thing that got things rolling for her. And some of the dancers had been to the open days in the past but not all of them. One of the dancers came down from Melbourne and was coming down to do the rehearsals, like flying from Melbourne to Hobart to do the rehearsals because she'd been going to the opening of duck shooting season, which is a massive thing in Victoria for years. And there, I mean, we have like about a 1,000 registered duck shooters across the whole of Tasmania, but the population's only 500,000 people as well across the whole of Tasmania. Victoria is by far the biggest. And they've still got about a, about 30,000 registered duck shooters and their seasons are c- completely out of control. Um, but, yeah, so she was just, I want to be in on this thing. Yeah, so it was, a, it was a real mix of people. And in terms of, because this is the other thing, so there, there were the, the actual, you know, the six dancers on the stage, but there was, I don't know, 30 or 40 people out on the wetlands towing you know with kayaks and we'd painted all of these um, decoys hot pink that they were towing behind the kayaks and they had the hot pink flags as well so and the lagoon is so it's 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 enormous and it's very very flat and you know because we're out there from um, an hour before well they can start shooting an hour before dawn so um the, the pink, like in its, you, you know, you look across the far side of that lagoon and you can see these little dots of pink, like it just stands out enormously. And so there was this incredible group of people who were there doing the work that we needed to do without any of the kudos of being the performers or anything else, keeping the ducks from the shooter's guns. The vast majority, it was their first time to the lagoon. So that event wasn't even just an encouragement for activists latent activists but also it was a it's an invitation as well which is fascinating it was it was doing all these different purposes on the base purpose of of for the animals for the ducks could you perceive the impact of that event through the through the shooters did you get any feedback from the shooters that was different to regular direct action events the opening events you've done it, it was really interesting obviously though some of them were quite riled by it on the lagoon itself, 
We've always been quite careful to not provoke the shooters. Like we don't, there's no point. We don't want to put anybody in danger. And so on that opening weekend, there wasn't immediately any great difference in the shooters' reaction. However, as we came in late morning, because they stopped shooting late morning because the ducks settle, there's one quite narrow kind of track, dirt track down to the lagoon, and there's a small parking bay at the end. And Jed had his ute there and we were unpacking the stage. And we were at the tail end of just doing that. And uh, two ute loads of shooters turned up. And there was me and Jed and there are a couple of people still in the lagoon coming in and they got very, very aggressive, really nasty. Uh, one, like they got out of the car with their guns in their hands, their um, shotguns. And the first thing was that this guy says to me, G'day, vet, how's it going? And I'm like, right, so he knows exactly who I am. Uh, and it just became really quite threatening. Fortunately, um, uh, and I, I can't remember, there was somebody else there and I said, could you please go back to camp and get, because, you know, we need to get the police. And the police came and sorted it out, but they said they don't, uh, no, sorry, Parks and Wildlife guys and then the police. And they said they don't know who they were, they're not locals, so no idea where they came from. But interestingly, um, so there are two campsites quite close together, they're just bush camps. And in one of the camps, one of the shooters who goes just still set up his little kind of thing. He's there with the son, sort of, you know, and some of the, the rescuers were having a chat to him and that was all sort of fine. Um, and then the next morning I went out in a, in a kayak um, because we all try, always try and stay for the, um, the following day for the two, two days. We didn't perform again. And one of the shooters said, hey, love, can you come over this way? I want to take a photo for my mate. So I took the kayak across because it, it still had the ducks trailing behind and I had the flag and, you know, I think we still had like the tutus and stuff on. And I got chatting to him and he was quite interesting. He said, bloody mad idea, but I thought it was great. <laughs> and we got into this conversation about how, you know, why it happened, about how it was getting harder to get activists up there. And he said, oh, it's just like my son. He said he's asleep in the bottom of the hide. <laughs> so it's an interesting mix of things. There was some pretty nasty stuff on social media afterwards. Mm. And interestingly, the following year and in subsequent years, it's interesting how it's, um, it's, it's flowed on. So like even, even um, this year, I think they feel under threat. They feel like it might actually be taken away from them. And the there's yeah, there's there's been an ongoing backlash from the shooters since then. Oh, well. It's interesting thinking about again and going back to the aesthetics of it, how they've got the gun, this kind of violence that the shooters bring, and then the counter of this passive kindness and this dance, which is such a seems such an innocent art form. Which, as you say, it, it works in two ways. It, it's mocking. But there's also this kind of the novelty can also reach them in a way that is entertaining to them as well. So you've got both realities. Yeah, but it's interesting that thing about it being mocking, it is, and obviously, you know, I was aware of this when I went into it about the power of humor, of that kind of humor to undercut this quite violent, established, you know, event. Yeah. 
I mean, it's very easy uh, as an activist, it's very easy to not meet them with the violence than the shooters or hunters or whatever have, but this meets them with the aggravation, shouting. And so to turn it on its head and to have something creative and something opposite is, well, it's also, speaking from experience, it's also quite um, difficult to do that. It's difficult to not be riled as, as an activist to people confronting yeah, and, and threatening you. And yeah, it's such a, using performance and using um, creativity is such a uh, especially as a as a collective as a collaborative I think can give you real strength for sure um, look I think it does and I think it's also you know when when you're in those situations where there's potentially some confrontation you know having something that can diffuse that by giving you something else to focus on rather than somebody who's trying to provoke you is a good thing I mean you know I just think Years of activism are just in, in just in normal personal relationships. There's no point in trying to change the mind of someone who's angry. So the humour of a performance can go one of two ways. It can actually inflame someone's anger, but potentially it also is this thing of can, that can diffuse a situation by opening up another way of engaging with people. But also I think really important, as you're saying, is this thing about, you know, giving the activists something to do that isn't just about confronting people who are just going to make you angrier. Yeah, so that, it'll be good to move on to that then, speaking of the anger and and your creative practice. Obviously, you've done you've done more um, than Duck Lake. You do beautiful paintings and all sorts. So as an activist and as a creative, are there different feelings towards towards these practices? So... For example, when you've been out, when you've been out of the duck shoot opening and you're just doing the rescuing, and then when the Duck Lake project happened, was there a different feeling in that form of activism? I'd never done anything like that before. I had no idea how it was going to come off. It was it was completely, I just had to put trust in this somehow coming together. And what was really interesting for me was. You know, for someone who'd never, you know, I was a painter, I'd sort of done some work in photography, I was a printmaker, whatever, I was sort of working in fairly conventional um, modes. And I'd never spent any time thinking about relational aesthetics or socially engaged art practices or anything like that. And I wasn't thinking about that when really when I put Duck Lake together. Um, you know, I thought about it after the fact, but it wasn't coming from me trying to extend my practice it wasn't anything like that. It was just this very simply this mad idea that I decided for whatever reason to, to, to make happen. But it's an entirely different way of working. And there is something really powerful in that where you realise that the effective nature of that way of working is that it empowers a whole bunch of people as well as actually ideally making a difference for the actual cause that it's trying to deal with. So for me, what's important about Duck Lake is that it re-engaged both activist and media interest in that, but more importantly, that it stopped more ducks getting shot. That was the main purpose of this, always. Stop more ducks being shot. And obviously there's no simple way to quantify how effective that was other than to say 
if things had gone on as they had been when I went up that year when there was hardly anybody there, one can only assume that more ducks would have been shot. So, you know, that's the, the, the difficult thing is, you know, for all of us always in the animal rights movement is how to quantify the effectiveness of what we do. And there's no simple answer to that. But it is the thing that we need to keep in mind all the time is that that's the main game. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you're right as well. I mean, if you're right, if it kept it going at what it was without some sort of intervention, whether it's creative or not, lack of rescuers and lack of media presence, yeah, it would have just kept going for sure. And I think that's an issue in activism all around the board of groups starting and then numbers dwindling and then becoming less effective in that way. But this point of empowerment is really interesting that you said, this empowering activists who do it already but are motivated to get back into it and also people who are new to it. It's really interesting, Duck Lake, being a kind of, as I said before, an entry point. Do you think there's something there of the novelty of Duck Lake in this really extremely tense atmosphere with the threat of violence? I mean, I've never come across, I've never done activism where there's guns involved. I mean, that's another level, like... I would be feel really scared to confront a hunter who's shooting in the countryside. Do you think that having this kind of accessible art project, like you said before, had made activists from that? Do you think that was also a really good purpose for performance or creative art as, as a way in? It's an interesting question because I don't think there's a simple answer to that, that, you know, that... Um you know, performative actions are necessarily going to bring activists in. Honestly, sometimes I'm like, oh, it's like the Extinction Rebellion thing. It's like I've been to a few and I've done the thing and I'm like, I hate this. I really hate this. So it's like it's no, there's no, I don't think it's a simple panacea for engaging people necessarily um, because different people are attracted to different things. The important thing about Duck Lake was that there were only actually, um, you know, the, the six or seven dancers who actually had to do the performing. Everybody else was there as a support crew. They could do, they could if they wanted to. Like there was no, it was an open call. The biggest disappointment about the whole thing, just by the by, is that there wasn't a single male dancer. But anyway, let's, you know, it's just not uh, so frustrating. Because in my original idea, it would be a bunch of blokes in tutus. Anyway. But I think it's that thing of it's that stepping out of ordinary life to create this thing. It's a bit like, um, what was that mad film, the Werner Herzog one? Oh, I can't think of the name of it anyway, where they create this opera on this. Yeah. It's this, the realisation of this crazy thing and that nobody, it's that thing about not no one person has to kind of, there's no failing at it in a sense. It is what it is. And it happens because of everybody playing a small part in whatever way they feel comfortable, which is not to say that there aren't some people who push themselves beyond their comfort zone. That's not what I'm suggesting, but that obviously there was some, there was a lot of planning that went into it, but it wasn't so carefully designed that people felt like they couldn't do their own thing within all of this that was really like I'm not a I can be a bit of a control freak but I wasn't in that other than I wanted to make sure my control freak career is around making sure that we had good coffee because I just want to make sure that everybody's experience is something where they're putting in all of this effort 
and that we need to actually make this. It's a long weekend. It's like two solid days of on almost no sleep. And that for me, like having good food and good coffee is this kind of small reward for the incredible effort that people put in. Of course, there's a whole team of people putting in the effort to make the food and the coffee happen as well. But you know what I mean? It's this thing. I don't think there's a simple thing around whether I think performance is obviously an important part of what we do in activism. But how that happens is so varied. And whether it's the thing that brings people to activism, maybe it could be the thing that repels some people. I don't know. But only if they feel like they have to do it. Like you feel like you want to just turn up to a protest and you're told you can only do that if you wear a blah, blah. Some people just don't want to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. There's, there's, it's kind of community building, isn't it? It's not just about the actual piece that's on there. Yeah. It's this thing beyond that. And you're right, the simple things like tea and coffee like make the difference. Like going, when, when I go to a slaughterhouse vigil, I've got a coffee in my hand. Like That's part of my yeah, comfort. Yeah. That's part of my... Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of my ritual in a way. And it, it, without that, I, I think there would be there'd be less community. There'd be less kind of mingling. There'd be less kind of um, absolutely agree. Empowerment. Yeah, you're so right. It's about that community building. That's really what it's about. I think that's absolutely vital. And I think the biggest mistake that we can make is to overlook some of those really small things that might seem incidental, but are actually fundamental to bringing a group of people together in a way where. You know, because often these are really unpleasant things that we're, we're doing. How can we make this something that isn't just a horror? Because frankly, you know, like how many times can you do that if you know that if there's not just that little thing, the hot coffee or the whatever it is. But sometimes it's also as important as the fact that there might be somebody who can't do the vigil, but they can do the making of the coffee. And that's their contribution. And they're happy to be there to do that. But that's all part of that community building. Yeah, for sure. And it goes such a long way. And there's real value in that. And I suppose that doesn't get as celebrated as it should in a way. Oh. Yeah. Just to pick your brain a bit more on that kind of, you kind of half answered it really. But it is the big question of what role does creative arts have in the animal rights movement? Is there a certain role that creative arts plays or should play more so or less so in the movement itself oh boy that's that's you know that's a huge question because the creative arts itself is so massive in terms of you know what mode of expression that might take bottom line absolutely creative arts has an important role to play and I have to say as someone who um I think the creative like it we we are a poorer society in general if people involved in the creative arts and this is not to say that everybody involved with creative arts needs to do this, but if there aren't, you know, like I just think if we're not engaging with what's going on in the world as creative artists, then why are we involved at all? Like, is that not one of the like, most important things we do as artists is to engage with the world around us? Now, if there aren't a good number of artists who aren't thinking around social justice issues in their works and that has always been the case that that there are artists doing that then there is something wrong and if there aren't at least some of those artists who are interested in social justice issues who aren't interested in animal rights as a social justice issue then we're really in trouble so absolutely the creative arts have an important role to play I've been involved so you know like my um 
undergraduate and last year of my undergraduate degree, I took animals and human-animal relationships as a building thing as my subject matter. I didn't really know what I was doing. There was no animal studies back then, this is like 1984 or something. Um, and so it's been an interesting thing for me to watch as this has developed. And what I've seen is animal studies as a field or human animal studies has developed as a field of scholarly inquiry is how really from really early on the creative arts were a part of that and continue to be so. And I think there's something about that as well. I think um, it's a vital part of what we do as animal studies scholars, as activists, as artists. I, I don't think you can neatly unpack those things necessarily. There's also no easy quantifying how effective, but you can say that for any social justice movement. So yes, I think it's incredibly important. And more important is that artists who are working with animals as subject matter do so in a way where they start to acknowledge the subjects of their work and, their, and, and the agency of those animals you know I think for too long animals have been kind of decorative elements or and I'm not by any and I just think there are beautiful artworks out there that do use animals as decorative elements I'm not suggesting that all artwork needs to that uses animals needs to have an activist intent probably what bothers me more so is those artists I mean apart from the ones who actually abuse or kill animals for artworks um are those who um who skirt around the edges of these things. But it's still early days as well. I don't know, I suppose the creative arts offer all sorts of opportunities for thinking through other possible modes of engaging new audiences with the issues. Yeah, it open, it opens doors, doesn't it? It opens doors to possibilities yeah. of engagement. Thank you. That's such a fantastic insight. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're Beth. very welcome. And I appreciate your time in listening to this episode today. So thank you very much. If you did enjoy this episode, please do share, like, review, subscribe, all the good stuff. All the stuff to say is thank you for listening and goodbye.